Hey guys, this is Mandy and Melissa from Moms and Murder, a true crime podcast featuring two moms who think they're funny. Trust us guys, we are. Join us each week as we discuss both the infamous and unfamiliar stories in the world of true crime. You can check us out on our website at momsandmurder.com and also connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We release new episodes on Tuesdays, so we hope you'll check us out. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me tonight is Allie. How are you tonight, Allie? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good, and we have a big episode today, so we're going to jump right into it. Research assistance for tonight's episode was provided by Jessica Bentoncourt, so thank you, Jessica, for your help. Tonight, we are discussing the murders of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, known more commonly as the Boys on the Tracks as their bodies were first spotted lying across train tracks. We've had some feedback from listeners lately that specific disclaimers for content would be appreciated, particularly in cases involving children and or abuse. So with that in mind, this case is about the murders of two teenage boys. Another quick note about this case, there is a lot of conspiracy around it. It's similar in my mind to the Johnny Gosh case where conspiracy almost overshadows the victims and their stories. We've done our best to strip that away while we recount the events, though we will give an overview later in the episode. If you want more information on the details, particularly into the background investigations into corruption in Arkansas, I highly recommend Mara Leverett's book, called The Boys on the Tracks. She tells the boys' story respectfully and covers the background on the possible cover-up clearly. More importantly, she puts it all into context. It was obviously a source for this episode, and it's definitely worth reading. Let's start with the victims. Kevin Ives was 17 years old and about to start his senior year in high school. He lived at home with his parents, Linda and Larry. His older sister was away at college. He was a physical kid. He learned to water ski at the age of three. He lifted weights. He played football. He had a typical teenager job bagging groceries, but he left that to work as a carpenter's helper in the summer before his senior year. He loved it. Kevin had recently become closer to a friend of his, Don Henry. This was a bit of a new situation for Kevin's parents. In the past, they knew the families of all of Kevin's closest friends, but they didn't know Don's family well. Don lived with his dad, Curtis, and his stepmother. Like Kevin, he also had a sister. Don wanted to be an electrician when he finished school, and he worked with his dad at the Little Rock Electric Company. Don liked the outdoors, and he was very familiar with the woods near his home. He and Kevin both liked hunting and working on their cars. Really typical teenage boys here. Bryant is neighbored by Alexander, and outside of the two cities is some unincorporated land that is the jurisdiction of Saline County Sheriff. The unincorporated land is where this train incident happened. You'll sometimes see it reported as it happened in Bryant, sometimes as Alexander, but the Saline County Sheriff was the one with jurisdiction. On the night of Saturday, August 22nd, 1987, Kevin and Don were planning a sleepover at Don's house. Linda was hesitant because the last time Kevin slept over at Don's, Don and his dad got into an argument and the boys left the house. Curtis had called the Ives home the next morning to see if the boys were there, which they weren't. They had gone to a different friend's house for the night without telling their parents. Now, I can say as a parent, this is not the call you want to get. When Kevin came home the next day to very worried parents, he didn't see it being a big deal. Like we said, he was your typical teenager. But after Linda checked with Curtis that the boys would spend the night there, and he assured her that he was enforcing the midnight curfew, she let Kevin go. According to friends, the boys spent the evening hanging out with their friends. They'd gone to a friend's house, then out to play pool, and they drove around for a bit. At some point, they met a group of friends at a local convenience store parking lot, which was a common hangout area in Bryant. And according to witnesses, they smoked a few joints with the group. 
Around midnight, Kevin and Don returned to Henry's house and asked permission to go out night hunting. They left with a heavy-duty flashlight and a shotgun around 12.30. Friends later told police that the boys actually intended to go spotlighting. And for those who don't know, spotlighting is an illegal method of hunting that involves one person shining a spotlight on the prey to make it freeze, and then the other shoots the animal. With Curtis's permission, they headed out into the woods near Don's home that was next to the train tracks. At 4.25 a.m., so we're talking the morning of August 23rd, about a mile from the Henry's home was a mile-long Union Pacific freight train that was moving at approximately 52 miles per hour. When the conductor and three other workers on the train noticed something up ahead on the tracks, it was a dark spot on the track, but they couldn't tell what it was. They blew the horn in the event it was an animal, but as they approached, they could see in front of them there were two people lying across the tracks with a tarp covering the lower part of their bodies. They would later be identified as Kevin Ives and Don Henry. The engineer continued to blow the horn and they pulled the brake, though it would take them half a mile or eight-tenths kilometer before they could stop completely. It was approximately three to five seconds between putting the brake handle in the emergency position and impact. They couldn't do anything except watch the scene, and three to five seconds sounds very quick, but I'm sure in the moment it didn't feel short. They made some very specific observations. The bodies were lying next to each other across the tracks with their head against one rail and their legs hanging over the other rail. They were covered up to the waist with a pale green tarp. There was a gun near the boys with the barrel up by their heads and the stock under the tarp. Most notably, neither of the boys flinched. They didn't make the slightest movement to indicate they knew a train was coming. Anyone who's been around a train knows how loud they are and how loud the horn is. Add into that the squeal of the emergency braking and the vibrations of the rails, and it is doubtful either boy could be conscious and not even flinch as the train approached. All four of them on the train witnessed the same thing, so this story has been verified by all four of them. What happened after Curtis saw them leave their mobile home at 12.30 and the train hitting them after 4am is where the mystery is? And that's what the investigation was supposed to figure out. Law enforcement and paramedics arrived on the scene within 15 minutes. Because this was an unincorporated area, the Saline County Sheriff's Department responded. Two paramedics on the scene were not needed as, of course, the boys did not survive being hit by the train. Their bodies were mutilated. But the paramedics made an interesting note in their report. It said, quote-unquote, Blood from the bodies and on the body parts we observed was dark colour in nature. Due to our training, this would indicate a lack of oxygen present in the blood and could pose a question as to how long the victims had been dead. A state trooper who responded to the scene had previously that night responded to a call about two shots being fired in the area. He also told the sheriff deputies that it didn't look like an accident to him. But investigators treated it as an accident from the start, and that was the beginning of the mistakes being made. When investigating the scene of a death, it makes the most sense to start investigating as though it was a homicide. That means securing the scene and collecting the evidence. Then you can walk back from that if it appears to be an accident. But if you start investigating like it was an accident and then later on it turns out to be a homicide, you may have lost or contaminated valuable evidence. Well, some see this as the start of a conspiracy by the law enforcement, as basically law enforcement trying to cover up a murder from the start by saying it was an accident. We have to consider another possibility that the deputies may have believed this was a double suicide and they were trying to spare the families by putting out the idea it was an accident. But the idea this was not a murder led the bodies being ordered straight to the funeral home. The rules around when autopsies are required, it varies from state to state. And Arkansas does not require an autopsy if death is caused by a traffic accident. 
At some point, though, the deputy does change his mind and they're sent to the crime lab. Additionally, they did not believe the train conductors or the brakemen in the train when they said there was a tarp. They thought it was some type of illusion. Maybe it was a trick of the light. There were no signs of the tarp at the scene, according to the deputies anyway. But the train conductor says he pointed out where the tarp had been blown after the train hit the boys. But apparently the deputy does not remember this and no tarp was taken into evidence. Another mistake was in making the crime scene drawing. The deputy used the train car as a reference point. As soon as the train car was moved, though, the drawing became fairly useless. Then they allowed a train that was waiting pass through, right through the crime scene. Meanwhile, Don's father was the first to become alarmed. He noticed the boys hadn't been back to the house by about 4 a.m., so he went looking for them. He was a little worried they had run into trouble in the woods, perhaps getting caught spotlighting or hunting out of season. He drove around looking for them for a little bit, but then he headed back home. He didn't get out and search the woods by foot, and he didn't go near enough the scene to notice the added police presence. At 10 in the morning, with the boys still not home, he called Linda Ives to see if the boys had ended up back at their house for the night. Of course, they weren't, but this had happened before and Kevin had come home fine. Linda waited for Kevin until noon this day when Curtis called back. He said the boys had been shot, tied to the railroad tracks, and run over by a train. He had gotten this information from a neighbor, and we know now that it was inaccurate. There was no evidence that they were shot or tied down. But the core was true. The boys had been hit by a train on the tracks. Linda didn't fully process what Curtis was saying, but she had a neighbor drive her over to the Henry home so she could find out what was going on. A deputy came by and cleared up some of the confusion in the details, and they could make a possible identification based on the clothing found at the scene. Clothing matching what Kevin had last been seen wearing was found at the scene, and a Little Rock Electric Company hat that Don often wore was also found. Dental records would later confirm their identities. At this point, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. In need of great talent for your business but short on time, you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com site. That's ZipRecruiter.com site. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com site. ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Now let's talk about the initial autopsy. We can't talk about it without explaining a little about Dr. Fami Malik. He was the Arkansas medical examiner, and Malik had been on the post for nine years prior to the train deaths. He was already a somewhat controversial figure due to allegations of misdeeds. He allegedly used some outdated stationery to falsify documents to purposely misrepresent evidence in court. But at the time of the death, Malik was really only controversial to those who were close to those cases. These allegations weren't widely known to the public, though they would eventually become very well known. Malik ruled the deaths accidental due to THC intoxication, THC is the reason people smoke marijuana. 
It's the compound that produces that euphoric high. He said the boys had fallen into a deep sleep on the tracks, so deep that they did not wake up when the train was coming towards them because of the psychedelic influence of the THC. Malik also noted that there were no injuries not consistent with the damage done by the train. The families wanted to meet with him to ask more questions. While not experts in marijuana themselves, they couldn't conceive that pot would affect anyone this way. Malik told them that the boys' THC levels were very, very high. Now, there's some dispute over this, but an officer told them that Malik said that it was the equivalent of smoking 20 joints each. Now, again, the family were not experts in marijuana or its use, but 20 joints seemed to them to be a lot to smoke in one evening. This meeting with Malik did not go well. The families didn't feel like he was answering their questions And when they pushed him to answer them, he told them that the proof was in the photos and he started pulling out the autopsy photos out of an envelope. Now, of course, the families, they didn't want to see that. The investigation would show that the boys bought $10 worth of weed the night before they died. And the friends they were with said they couldn't have smoked more than one or maybe two joints each at the most. The families, in the meantime, were doing some of their own investigation. They found things at the scene that were not taken into evidence by the police. The Ives family found a large piece of cardboard with what looked like a blood stain near the incident scene. Of course, it needed to be tested, but the idea was that it could have been used to drag the bodies over to the tracks. The family took this to the crime lab to be tested, but it seems like it never was. Curtis Henry found pieces of a gun in the area. This was also turned over to the crime lab, and it appears these pieces were lost. Quite possibly the most disturbing item left was found by one of Don's extended family members two days later. It was one of Kevin's feet. They called the sheriff to collect it, and the crime lab was called. The crime lab told them to send it to the funeral home because they didn't need it. The autopsies had been complete. And we should note that Kevin's foot being missing was not noted in the autopsy, and it seems odd that this would have been left out. Lindo later heard rumors about the paramedics report noting that the blood and the body parts looked like the boys had been dead for some time. Linda tried to meet with one of them, but he was reluctant and told her to just request the report and that he had spent hours typing it. The private investigator the families hired told them do exactly that, request all the reports they can dealing with their son's cases. Initially, the hospital said there wasn't any report because the paramedics didn't treat the boys, so they didn't file a report. But eventually, they did send a short report that was written by the other paramedic. The detailed one talking about the color of the blood that he said he spent hours typing, that never showed up. Now, tips and rumors kept coming to the families and they kept passing it along to the sheriff's department. However, the case had been ruled an accident. The state medical examiner had said so. Following up on the leads from a closed case, it would have been a low priority to them. The families once again took things into their own hands and asked that samples be sent from the state crime lab to another lab for more testing, but Dr Malik refused. So they got a court order, but then he still refused. Then they went to the state authorities and were told that Malik could not be compelled to release the samples. So they did the next thing they could do. They held a press conference in January, five months after the boys' deaths. The families publicly challenged the findings of accidental death at their press conference, and this got wide media coverage. This was the beginning of statewide and even nationwide media interest in the case. Reporters following Larry Ives and Curtis Henry to the crime lab and with an audience, Dr Malik finally agreed to release the samples he'd previously refused to and he even suggested they exhume the bodies. But the media didn't stop there with Dr Malik. 
they started looking into his past and the allegations of misconduct, and they started reporting on it. Malik defended himself. He claimed he hadn't made a single incorrect ruling and that some issues may be miscommunication since English wasn't his first language. The media pursued this long enough and hard enough that out-of-state experts were brought in to look over the state crime lab. Frustrating to those who felt that Malik was acting improperly, time and time again he was supported by powerful people like the State Sheriff's Association and then-Governor Bill Clinton. But here's the thing with Malik that I just don't understand. Rather than being censured or reprimanded or, heaven forbid, dismissed from his job, he was eventually given a raise and blame was put on him being overworked and not having enough resources. It seemed really that nothing Malik could do could be wrong in the eyes of the state of Arkansas. A quick side note, the families were united in their approach early on, but as the media interest grew, Linda kept using the media to put pressure on authorities, and the family split. Curtis was worried that Linda would push too hard and get in the way of the investigation. At one point, Linda consulted a psychic who told her that Don's sister knew more than she was saying. Linda took this to Curtis. He understandably went into protective mode with his daughter, and this drove a further wedge between the families. For what it's worth, the psychic is the only hint I've seen of Don's sister knowing anything about the boys' deaths. The Henrys eventually moved out of Saline County. Even within the Ives' home, Larry supported what Linda did, but he chose, over the many years of activism and advocacy on Linda's part, to take a quieter role. Most of the media exposure this case has gotten has been because of Linda. However, early on in what we're talk- going to be talking about coming up, the families were still really united. So back to the main story. The day after the press conference, the district deputy prosecuting attorney Richard Garrett called the families. He had been unaware that the families were questioning the investigation and that they weren't satisfied with the ruling. He wanted to hold a special prosecutor's hearing to have another look at the case and the evidence. A prosecutor's hearing is unusual. It's most often used when the cause of death is in dispute, like it was in this case. It happens before a grand jury, though it works a lot like a grand jury. It's a chance to call witnesses and lay out all of the evidence. Unlike a grand jury, this is open to the public. Dan Harmon, a local attorney who had previously been a prosecutor, was appointed to be the special prosecutor in this case. The prosecutor's hearing began on February 18, 1988, and lasted three days with Richard Garrett taking lead and Dan Harmon assisting. The families would come to really trust Garrett and Harmon, particularly Harmon, as they seemed determined to find out what really happened to the boys. A new piece of information came out with the testimony of one of the paramedics. The boys were on the train track through the woods, and there wasn't a road, so she had to drive the ambulance through the woods to get as close as possible to the scene. She saw three men near the scene. They said they were from the Alexander Volunteer Fire Department and had come over to see if they could help. This was new information to the prosecution as well as to the families. It doesn't appear that anyone else knew the three men were there. Malik was, of course, called to testify, but he refused to testify when Garrett told him not to pull out the autopsy photos. Malik said he couldn't prove cause of death without them and because of that, he would not testify. This seems odd since he said the boys died because they smoked an excessive amount of marijuana, and toxicology results, you think that would have been enough, and it wouldn't have been visible on the remains anyway. This halted the hearing until the state attorney general was called. Garrett was told he could not compel Malik to testify, so he agreed to Malik's terms. The families, however, left the hearing while the remains were shown, During his testimony, Malik was basically forced to admit that his ruling was based on the toxicology reports and not the photos. 
He then essentially just repeated what he already told the family, that his ruling was an accident due to THC intoxication, and that his evidence supported that and nothing would change his mind. When he asked if it was possible the train could have covered up other wounds that weren't related to the train accident, Malik said he wouldn't have missed evidence of non-train-related injuries. Other testimony was given over three days. Friends of the boys testified and gave a good outline of the events of the evenings before their deaths. The train crew gave testimony on what they had witnessed from when they saw the boys on the tracks to the way the crime scene was handled. The second paramedic testified to what his missing report had stated, that it was possible the boys were dead for some time before being hit by the train due to the colour of the blood. Five days after the end of the prosecutor's hearing, Garrett changed the cause of death from accidental to undetermined. We need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. One of the best things about traveling for my daughter's dance competitions is getting to stay in hotels. But when we got to our hotel at a recent competition, we climbed into bed and my husband said to me, these sheets, nah, we're Brooklyn and at home. Brooklinen.com was founded by a husband and wife team after they stayed in a hotel and they loved the sheets and they realized these sheets were being marked up 300% by the time they reached the store and they decided they wanted to make quality luxury sheets and bedding accessible to everyone. Brooklinen cuts out the unnecessary markups and the retail licensing fees and the manufacturing waste so that they can offer high-end designs and exceptional savings across their collection. This is luxury bedding underpriced, and you have to try these sheets today. I love my Brooklinen sheets. Try these sheets, and I know you'll love them too. Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Shop Cyber Monday with Brooklinen's biggest and only sale of the year. Get up to 20% off everything site-wide and a free gift with purchase. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. There's no reason not to give these sheets a try. This is Brooklinen's biggest and only sale of the year, so it's the perfect time to stock up for you and those on your list with what will be your new favorite sheets. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. The families, distrustful of the Arkansas State Crime Lab at this point, wanted to get the evidence forensically evaluated by an outside lab. The first pathologist they hired to rerun the tests to determine the THC levels didn't exactly do that. The tests were supposed to be of blood and urine, only Don's urine couldn't be used because his bladder had been too damaged. In the end, the pathologist had Kevin's urine and blood and Don's blood, yet only ran the test on Kevin's urine. He reviewed Malik's test results and he backed him up. Eventually, the families connected with two toxicologists who were experts specifically on marijuana and its effects on the body. Marijuana does not directly induce sleep. Even at high doses, the deep coma-like sleep the boys would have had to have been in wouldn't be expected. The experts also cast some doubt on the testing method of the crime lab in determining the levels of THC. The prosecutors were also interested in getting some outside help to look over the case. After the prosecutor's hearing, which did not conclusively decide on a cause of death, Garrett and Harmon approached the families about taking the next step, and that's exhuming the bodies and having them examined outside of Arkansas. The families agreed, and an exhumation was ordered in March of 1988. A medical examiner from Georgia traveled to Arkansas to conduct the autopsies in early April. He sent the evidence he had, the boys' clothing and tissue samples, to his own lab. He went to the scene and took his own photographs. The second autopsy disputed the first one in nearly every way. It concluded the boys had smoked one to three joints, not 20. Don's shirt was not on his body when the boys were found. It was further away from the track. A slash was found in his shirt that aligned with a back injury on Don's body. Had the slash been from the train, it would have looked like a tear in the fabric. 
Using an electron microscope, the technician found that the fabric looked cut with a blade and not torn. Kevin's remains also showed signs of an injury not consistent with the train. Kevin had suffered an injury to his face from a blunt instrument. Possibly it was a rifle butt, as the mark aligned with the gun found near the tracks. But due to Malik's unusual autopsy procedure, it was nearly impossible to tell the extent of this injury. Malik had left significant marks on the skull, and it was difficult to tell his marks from any skull fracture Kevin may have sustained when hit. The second autopsy concluded that the boys were injured and unconscious, if not dead, when the train hit them. On April 28, 1988, and what would have been Kevin's 18th birthday, a grand jury was sworn in with Dan Harmon as the prosecutor. Grand juries are fact-finding juries. They help the prosecutor decide whether to bring charges in the event of a crime. The grand jury had 16 people on it. Jurors on the grand jury are allowed to ask questions of witnesses, request witnesses to be subpoenaed, and view pretty much all of the evidence. But because grand jury proceedings are sealed, we will never know for sure what was said in there. A month into the grand jury, the jurors gave a preliminary ruling of, quote, probable homicide, though they continued to meet. While the grand jury never ended in an arrest or even a solid suspect for the boys' murders, it did lead to other arrests. Evidence given in the grand jury had uncovered mostly drug crimes, but also some robberies, and arrests were made. One of the arrests was one of the men the paramedics said she saw in the woods that night. Many of the witnesses called to the grand jury were police officers who were not involved in the investigation. This seemed off and Harmon told the Ives family that there was a witness who said two deputies from a neighbouring county were seen beating two boys that night and that's why he was casting such a wide net. Others believe that this was part of Dan Harmon's personal agenda. It was alleged Harmon was personally involved in the local drug scene. It is known that he was being investigated by outside agencies as part of an investigation into corruption in the area. By calling all of these other law enforcement officers to the stand, he was free to ask some questions about the drug trade in the area and could gain more information about any investigations into it. Others thought he called them to the grand jury so that, should he be charged with drug offences later, he could claim it was retaliation against him for calling them to the stand in the first place. After four months, the judge was getting impatient with the process and wanted to dismiss the jury. They didn't seem any closer to a resolution in the boys' deaths. The second autopsy was then made public and the jury ruled that these were definitely homicides. The foreman of the jury asked for more time. They were then given more time, but in January of 1989, the grand jury was officially disbanded after nine months. They wanted to issue a multi-page report, but the judge only allowed them to release a relatively small statement in comparison. They stated that the boys' murders were drug-related. In October of 1988, while the grand jury was still meeting, Unsolved Mysteries did a segment on the case and For me, this was my first introduction to the case. In this episode, the engineer of the train, Stephen Schroyer, was interviewed, and you can see he was shaken as he recounted what happened that night. This was only 18 months after the incident, and you can imagine he was still in the early stages of healing from it. We've talked about the peripheral victims of crime before, and we have quite a few here. The friends and the family of the boys and the first responders who saw the aftermath of the violence of the train, they're victims of this crime too. And so are the men who watched helplessly as their train went over the boys, not knowing at the time if they were alive. Other information came out in this episode A week before the boys died, a man in, quote, military fatigues was seen near the tracks acting odd. For those who aren't familiar with the term fatigues, 
they're the combat uniform of the military as opposed to a dress uniform. When an officer attempted to question this man, he opened fire on the officer and fled. The night of the murders, witnesses saw a man matching the description of the same man in the military fatigues, leaving town on foot. He was about 200 yards or 183 meters from the scene. This man has never been identified. Prosecutor Garrett was interviewed, and he referenced a similar case out of Oklahoma. I looked up more information on it, and it is eerily similar. In 1984, Billy Hainline and Dennis Decker, both in their 20s, were hit by a freight train in a rural area of Hodgin, Oklahoma. Their deaths were ruled accidental, though they were both hit while lying across the tracks, and neither flinched when the train came at them. Their talk screen showed a small amount of alcohol. A grand jury in 1985 found no evidence of foul play, even though the sheriff believed they were put on the tracks. In the early 1990s, Linda Eyes filed a freedom of information request to the state police and was able to sit down with some of the case files. She found some information that she wasn't aware of. State Police Sergeant Barney Phillips wrote a report saying an informant in the area where the boys died was a drop zone for drugs coming up from Texas. It also said that the drugs were dropped by plane there. Now, this is important because this isn't the first time drug drops had been mentioned, but there had been this idea that they had been pushed off trains. Kevin's father, Larry, actually worked for the railroad and knew this would have been nearly impossible. Smuggling drugs from freight trains and pushing them off at specific places would require an extraordinary level of organisation and knowledge of the loading and unloading of freight trains, as well as the train schedules. Being dropped from low-flying planes, that just made more sense. This would later be backed up in 1993, when a new investigator on the case learned of complaints from residents of low-flying planes in the area. But we're jumping ahead here, we'll get to that in a little bit. Another notable thing, particularly if you lean forward towards the true cause of these deaths being covered up, is that an employee of the state crime lab did notice tears in Don's shirt and They wanted to do a recreation of sorts to see if these tears would line up with any injuries on Don's body. He was told not to do it, that the autopsies were done, and that the report needed to be finished that day. There was just no time. If there was a conspiracy to cover this all up, this shows someone in the crime lab purposely ignored the evidence that were raised by another employee. But it can also be evidence of incomplete work or a lab that just wasn't taking the time necessary to do a thorough job. If Malik was so convinced of his ruling, they may have figured, why waste the time on something that wouldn't change his mind anyway? So remember how we said a few minutes ago that one of the reasons Harmon may have been calling so many police officers to the stand was a report of two officers beating the boys the night Kevin and Don died. That was in these files that Linda saw. A man was driving home from a bar one night, and he was purposely trying to avoid the police. He had been drinking. He was driving with his headlights off, trying to stay on the down low. And as he was near a grocery store, he saw two cops with two teenage boys. First thing pops in his head, boys were probably trying to steal stuff from the store and got caught. One boy was kneeling on the ground with his head down, and the other was pushed up against a phone booth. The boy on the ground was lifted into the back seat of the police car by one officer, while the other officer hit the other boy in the head, possibly with the phone receiver. With this blow, the boy just dropped. He was picked up and put in the back seat with the other boy, and a twenty-two rifle was also tossed in the back. This statement would be backed up by a third-hand account of another man. It was a man known only as Jerry who told a friend who told a friend that he was outside the grocery store waiting to catch his wife cheating on him. While there, he saw two boys walk up to the store and a third boy ride up on his motorcycle. 
The three of them stood outside smoking. The boy on the motorcycle left as an unmarked police car pulled up. He said he recognized one of the officers as a deputy from neighboring Pulaski County, but he didn't recognize the other officer who was a larger man. An argument between the deputies and the boys ended in the deputies beating the boys before putting them into their car and driving off. A different theory emerged in 1990 when a woman named Catherine Brighttop testified in a hearing that her ex-boyfriend Paul Criswell had confessed to involvement in the deaths. He said that he and three others killed them when they were caught trying to steal cocaine from the home of James Calloway. She said one boy was beaten and the other was stabbed. There is a flaw in the story, though. Calloway was no longer living in the home the attempted theft supposedly occurred in. He had to move out due to a divorce before the boys had gone missing. A smaller flaw, but more like a flaw in reason from how I see it, is that these were two kids who smoked pot on occasion, stealing cocaine out of the home of a drug dealer seems like they skipped several steps in the descent into criminality. It would have been incredibly dangerous, and neither boy had a history of using hard drugs or of stealing or of extremely reckless behavior. For his part, Calloway denied involvement and said he was being used as a smokescreen to hide what was really going on. Then, in 1992, a new sheriff was elected and Linda Ives went to her to ask her to take another look at the boy's case. She assigned a deputy named John Brown, and he was new to Saline County, so he probably had the freshest eyes to look at the case. By this point, the case was well known, and so were all the rumours. Having someone come in who didn't know all these rumours, it would have been helpful. Brown said he was warned by a colleague against looking into the case too much, but he was determined to do his job. He started with the case file, which was missing evidence like crime scene photos. He had to start at the very beginning and rebuild that case file. In the summer of 1993, so when he found the report about the low-flying planes in the area, which solidified this idea that the boys' deaths were related to a drug drop, There are two theories along these lines. One is that the boys intended on stealing these drugs and got caught. The other is that the boys, while they were out night hunting, they came across the drop and saw something or someone that they shouldn't have seen. A new piece of physical evidence was turned over to Brown's investigation. A woman came to him claiming her ex-boyfriend was a low-level drug dealer in Sandling County and he knew he killed the boys. She handed over a long, narrow knife. There were flecks on the knife that could have been blood. I'm sure if he could trust the state crime lab and not having the facilities available in Saline County, he sent it over to the Little Rock Police Department for testing. He said it tested positive for blood, and the knife would later be turned over to the FBI when they had a look at the case, which we'll get to in a minute. Along the lines of the theory that these deaths were due to the boys being at a drug drop site, a woman named Charlene Wilson made a statement to John Brown. Brown went to interview her as her name came up in his investigation, and she ended up confessing to having taken part in the murders. Now, she later said she was pressured into making and signing the confession. While she backed away from her own participation, she later said she was there, but she was sitting in her car. She was waiting on her boyfriend and some others who were at the tracks for the drug drop. The boys stumbled on the scene accidentally and they were killed for who they saw at the drug drop site. Now, who was Charlene's boyfriend? It was Don Harmon. The same Don Harmon who was a special prosecutor appointed to lead the grand jury. Now, obviously, if this is true, it proves at least a local level cover up. The word of a now ex-girlfriend who is dealing with her own drug charges, charges that would be prosecuted by Harmon, by the way, isn't enough to shut the book on this case. In December of 1993, a friend of Kevin's was working in a car dealership when a young man about 18 came in. Somehow the topic of Kevin and Don came up, and this young man, 
talked as though he knew something about what had happened. Kevin's friend got his phone number to pass it on to Linda. And Linda called. This guy said that he was 12 when the boys were killed. He and his friends had heard that there was a marijuana patch in the woods. I think a lot of us may have had similar rumors in our towns about these fabled marijuana patches in the woods. So this boy and his friends were in the woods looking for this patch. He and his friends saw five people standing by the track, so they froze in the woods so they wouldn't be detected. He then saw two teenagers with a rifle and a flashlight walk toward the group of five. The two people started to turn around and walk away from the group when they were called back by someone in the group. Then there was what sounded like a gunshot, and the boy and his friends ran. The boy recognized a man in the group. He said the man was Dan Harmon, and he knew Harmon because Harmon had dated his mother. He also said he saw his aunt and an unknown man bury evidence related to the murders. After John Brown heard this story, he contacted the FBI. The FBI interviews and polygraphed the young man and placed him in protective custody because they believed him. It corroborated some other information they had, which could possibly be Charlene Wilson's statements. But one thing we should point out right now is that there were other investigations going on at this time. Investigations that were not directly related to the boys' deaths. These were investigations into drugs and corruption in Saline County and neighboring counties. Information was gained through these investigations that overlapped into the boys' deaths. So it's also possible the FBI had information from one of those investigations that backed up what this young man was saying. On the polygraph, the young man passed every question, except the one asking if he knew the man who buried the evidence with his aunt. He stuck with his original story, but he didn't know who the man was. But when they told him he showed deception on that question, he then admitted that that man was Keith McCaskill. And he was a local bar owner who was known to have involvement with drug dealers and users. Now, they re-polygraphed him and indicated he was truthful when he was naming McCaskill. And remember McCaskill because he will come up later again in the story. But this young man eventually stopped cooperating and his mum also stopped answering questions. Now, that's understandable since they believe the deaths were at the hands of the people in charge of the investigation. Another thing the FBI did was forensically examine the clothes the boys were wearing. This testing had not happened prior to this, and that knife, it was also tested. DNA was found on the clothes, but the FBI said it had degraded beyond being testable due to the storage conditions. Also, the knife did not have blood on it, and there was a denial that the Little Rock Crime Lab ever said that there was. By the end of 1995, the FBI, in spite of promises to the families that they would find answers, closed the investigation, saying they could find no evidence of foul play. Looking back over the various investigations into this case, all of which were closed without naming a suspect, the families generally accepted the sequence of events, that the boys went out to the woods to hunt, and while walking along the tracks, they walked upon a drug drop. They saw something they shouldn't have seen, or they saw people there who they recognised and who shouldn't have been there. They started to leave when they're called back. It makes sense that they would only go back if one of the people at the drug site was someone they knew and trusted. They wouldn't have walked back towards someone they didn't know. So someone fired a shot. It may have been Don firing a shot to give the boys a chance to run. They ran, as did the witness in the woods. They made their way to the payphone outside the grocery store to call for help when two deputies, who were aware they ran away from the drug site, they approached them. They beat them and bring them back to the tracks where they killed the boys and placed them onto the tracks. To mask them from the train crew, they covered them up with a tarp that blew down enough to expose their upper bodies before they were hit. Linda recently posted in a Reddit AMA that she believes either drugs or money was taken from that drop site previously. And that makes sense because it would explain why there were so many people there. 
why there were five people at the scene. They were on high alert. When the boys came up on the scene, the people there possibly interrogated them to find out what they knew. And that confrontation is what led to their death. There are statements that point to the theory that the boys did know about the drop site and they were caught trying to steal the drugs. But again, like I said earlier, they didn't have a history of hard drugs or of stealing or of extremely reckless behavior. So I lean towards the theory that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. We've tried to strip away some of the side issues and conspiracies surrounding these deaths to give as clear of a picture of what happened to these boys as we can. Often it seems these two promising young men become a footnote in their own deaths when you start zooming out and looking at the bigger picture and possible cover-up. But those issues are also very important to the story. So we have to go through them, and we're going to go through them now. We're not going to go near into the depth that I could bring us at this moment. That would be an eight-episode series, to be honest. I mean, honestly, someone should pitch this to Serial. But until Serial picks it up, I highly recommend the book Boys on the Tracks by Mara Leverett. She digs deep. Her writing is fantastic. Her research is terrific. And she goes into much more depth than we're going to about the background investigations and such that were happening at this time. One aspect of the possible cover-up or conspiracy are a series of deaths that happened in the year or so after the boy's death. These deaths were all people who were either suspected of involvement or were expected to testify in front of the grand jury. Now, the first death happened in July of 1988. Keith Coney was riding his motorcycle at excessive speeds and he slammed into the back of a semi-truck. His mum said he knew who killed the boys and a friend of his father said he told his dad that it was the police who killed the boys. One of the witnesses of the boys being outside the grocery store said there was a third boy there in a motorcycle who took off when the police showed up. Now, some believe this friend may have been Keith Coney. The second death was Keith McCaskill in November 1988. We said remember his name, but for those who already forgot, McCaskill owned a bar just outside Saline County, and a witness said he saw him bury evidence from the case. He was also acting as an informant, letting police know anything he heard in his bar. He had told people he was being followed and that he felt his life was in danger. Paranoia is not unheard of in drug users, so some people, they might not have taken him seriously at the time. But he was found stabbed outside his home and wrapped in a shower curtain. A neighbor of his was charged and convicted in the death after he gave a changing statement about witnessing multiple masked men kill Keith. But this neighbor had a lot of supporters. A lot of people think there's no way he did it. And his conviction was overturned on appeal. In July of 1989, Greg Collins was shot and his body was found south of Saline County. He was supposed to testify at the grand jury. Then at some point in early 1989, they attempted to subpoena a man named Booney Bearden to testify. Only they couldn't find them. And he's been missing for 30 years. Only his shirt has been found after an anonymous caller told police where he had been killed. He is presumed to be deceased. Jeffrey Rhodes was killed in June of 1989 by Frank Pilcher after Pilcher found Rhodes in a compromising position with Pilcher's girlfriend. This death likely wouldn't have been connected back to the boys, except Rhodes told his dad that he needed to get out of town because he knew who had killed McCaskill, and it's believed McCaskill knew who had killed the boys. There are others, but their connections are less obvious, so we don't need to get into all of them. A decent number of the people who died were involved in the drug trade, and there were people with other motives for their deaths than the connection to the boys. But we can't go without mentioning these because a couple... You might discount, but I mean, we just talked about five and there are more. 
In the background of these investigations into the boy's death were investigations into corruption and drug trafficking in Saline County. Although investigations were usually closed down, even as investigators were making headway, Den Harmon's luck eventually ran out. In 1996, he was forced to leave his position as prosecutor after he beat up a reporter for a local paper. Leaving office was part of his plea deal. In 1997, he was convicted on a number of charges. Drug and extortion were two, but the most serious offence was racketeering. He was convicted of using the prosecutor's office to engage in these illegal activities. Testimony at his trial revealed a system where he would take bribes from drug dealers to have charges dropped, and in one case, he offered to drop charges for a man if his wife would have sex with him. Though two previous investigations cleared him, Harmon was proven in court to be corrupt. So how did he keep getting cleared? Like the medical examiner, Dr Malik, it seemed that no amount of evidence of wrongdoing was going to stick. That's one of the major things that make people suspicious of a conspiracy. Did he know something that people more powerful than him didn't want coming out? If Dan Harmon was involved in the local drug and corruption scene, perhaps he had connections to something larger. I'm tempted to tell you to just go Google Mina and the Contra rather than try to boil it down to a concise overview, but... First, Mina is the site of an airport in Arkansas that drug kingpin Barry Seal kept planes and a major drug smuggling operation was happening. Even after Seal's death, it continued. The simplest connection to the boys' deaths is that the planes coming into the airport would fly low and drop drugs to the drop sites. And one of the drop sites was near the tracks where the boys were killed. A less simple connection is that the CIA was using Mina to launder money and to run weapons to the Contras. For those who were not living or growing up in the U.S. in the 80s, the Contra may not be as familiar to you as it is to me. The Contras were right-winged rebel groups in Nicaragua, and the U.S. backed them. They are one half of the Iran-Contra, if anyone remembers that. That's when the U.S. sold arms to Iran and used the proceeds to fund the Contras. It was a major scandal, largely due to the Boland Amendment that forbid the CIA from aiding the Contras. But we don't get political here, so let's move on. The thinking is, if the CIA was using MENA for covert operations, and drug smugglers were using MENA for covert operations, and the boy's death was due to these drug smugglers, even if the CIA was not directly involved in the boy's death, which likely they weren't, perhaps they aided in a cover-up in order to cover up their own use of the MENA airport. This is what I mean by you could zoom out and this could be a big mass conspiracy of the CIA, or we can look at it small and it was a local cover-up of local officials in drugs and corruption. The CIA Inspector General conducted an investigation into the CIA's use of MENA, but but they found that they were only using it for training exercises. They did not have knowledge of any illegal activities, and they didn't participate in any. But if you think the CIA is covering up something, this is hardly comforting. The inspector general is independent oversight, and they are not part of the CIA. They are appointed by the president and only can be removed by the president. But if you believe the Contras angle then you believe Presidents Reagan and Bush may have had knowledge and would have benefited from a cover-up. If you believe the more local Arkansas drug-running connection involving Dan Harmon is the root of the cover-up, then you know that President Bill Clinton, who was governor of Arkansas at the time, would have motivation to push a cover-up. Basically, if there was a drug conspiracy linked to MENA Airport and the CIA was also using MENA Airport, there are a lot of powerful people with motivation to cover it up. This relates more to the investigation into the boys' deaths than the actual deaths. It's unlikely the CIA had these boys killed. It's unlikely Bill Clinton even knew who they were before their deaths. If Dan Harmon and some local deputies were involved, they would obviously want to cover it up on a local level. But then consider that when the Ives and Henry families pushed back against the accidental ruling, the medical examiner was backed by state officials. 
when they pushed past the county and state investigations, the FBI came in and shut down the investigation without resolution. If there was motive to cover up Mina, it meant people at the top were thwarting efforts to investigate the boys' deaths as things started pointing towards Mina. And that is the extremely simplified version of the broader conspiracy theory. Again, Mara Leverett's The Boys on the Tracks book goes way more into it. Because the official investigations keep getting closed without resolution, Linda Ives kept going to the media. A documentarian named Pat Matriciana, known for his conservative films against the Clintons, paganism, Halloween, and a number of 